Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the hearing today before a three-judge panel of the D.C. Appeals Court on Trump's immunity claim that, if granted, would kill all the cases against him except the Florida documents case. With Trump in the courtroom today, we'll assess whether this is another example of Trump's delaying tactic to run out the clock until after the election so that he could bury the cases or pardon himself. Joining us is Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Bircham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at the Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney. She has written widely on criminal law, focusing both on criminal procedure and on the relationship between the law and the media. Then we'll examine the billionaire Bill Ackman's war against the media, who, after targeting the heads of Penn and Harvard, now finds himself going after MIT and the Business Insider for revealing his wife's plagiarism, which Ackman accused Harvard's former president, Claudine Gay, of, even though there was no evidence, as opposed to the mounting evidence against his wife. Joining us is William Cohen, a former senior Wall Street investment banker for 17 years at Lazard, Frears & Company, Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as a New York Times bestselling author whose books include Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and most recently, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. A founding partner at Puck News, we will discuss his latest article at Puck, Ackman's Revenge. Then finally, with a video Trump is promoting titled God Made Trump, inspiring the evangelical community while alarming secular America, we'll look into how Trump is getting over 50% of the vote in Iowa from evangelicals as Christian nationalists flock to his banner. Joining us is Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She serves as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she will be speaking at the Palm Springs International Film Festival this Wednesday about the new film Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's War on Democracy, based on her book Shadow Network. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. 
So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Burcham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at the Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney and has written widely on criminal law, focusing both on criminal procedure and on the relationship between the law and the media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laurie Levinson. Thank you so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Laurie. And in terms of law and the media, Donald Trump showed up in the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. today and then held a press conference after the hearing. So is this a part of his media tactic, being a former reality TV star, by sort of grandstanding, in effect, what Trump does is distracts the press from the content of what went on in the court. So it gives him an opportunity to make his case against what happened. Uh, and, of course, the press follow Trump like moths to a flame. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is his typical M.O., which is he'll take any opportunity and, frankly, exploit it and try to energize his base and try to present himself as a winner. But there are two different realities, one inside the courtroom during that actual argument and then Trump's take on it with the media. So I thought the most interesting exchange was when Trump's lawyers tried to make the case, uh, and f- well, following a question from one of the three judges on the panel, that given the Trump lawyer's argument, would that mean that a president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political uh-huh. rival? And in response... Trump's lawyer basically said that he could do it as long as he first was uh, impeached and convicted in the Senate, which then, of course, Jack Smith's deputy said, well, all he has to do is then resign (laughs) before the impeachment and he gets off scot-free. So, I mean, that's a pretty weak argument. Right. I don't think that the judges were buying the argument that there was absolute immunity unless there was an impeachment and a conviction, and then maybe he could be prosecuted. Um, Because as you pointed out, that leaves everything in the hands of the political process, which is the impeachment process. And these are very extreme examples that the court had, but very true examples. What if somebody as president used his powers, his official powers to do something that extreme? Would that give him absolute immunity? And that was a really hard question for Trump's lawyer. And two of the panel were appointed by Biden, the the third by uh, George W. Bush, Judge Henderson. And again, uh, Trump's lawyer said that uh, Trump was acting in the role as president and upholding his constitutional duty to preserve the integrity of the election when he tried to overturn his loss to President Biden. And Judge Henderson said in response, I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law. (laughs) Yes, uh, that was extremely damning by a judge would probably be his best hope, although I think that Judge Henderson is likely to go along with the others. And what they have to figure out is I don't think they're going to buy the absolute immunity argument. Then the question is, well... Do you have to go through this process of impeachment? I don't think they were buying that either. And then the third thing is, 
how broad is the scope then to prosecute Trump for actions when he was president? Does it cover anything he did or does it fall into certain categories of what he did? And President Nixon, of course, was brought up. What did you think about the context of President Nixon's? uh... Yeah, I thought that was important because that's what the lower court used to reach her judgment that he did not have immunity. They did the balancing. She did the balancing, the trial judge, and said under the Nixon case, which is precedent, what we have to do is balance how much you know freedom we want to give the president to make his presidential decisions versus the other interests at stake, which the special counsel really hit home on. And those special interests are the question of whether we have a functioning uh, executive branch, whether we have a president who's off taking liberties, even when it's not part of his official duties. So the whole focus by special counsel is to try to stay within what is the precedent. And the precedent is from that Nixon case, where they never found, in fact, suggested that there would not be absolute immunity. And what did you think about uh, Trump's lawyer's arguments in terms of a tit-for-tat, a Pandora's box being opened up here where former presidents could be uh, sued by just about anybody? And I think they gave the example that President Obama could be sued for authorizing a drone attack that had collateral damage. Yeah, and they even went after Biden, that Biden could be prosecuted. I think, frankly, that was more for public consumption, media consumption, than the court. You know, there's always the parade of horribles. What's going to happen next? But special counsel kept putting this back in the box of, this one is unique. This has never happened before, where you have a president who tries to overturn an election or bring an insurrection. And so even though I think that Trump's lawyers were trying to say politically, you know, if Trump gets in, he could go after everyone else. I'm not sure how much that actually helps him, either in the court or the court of public opinion. But if this ruling were to go in Trump's favor, wouldn't it be devastating for the special counsel and for most of the cases, including the one in Atlanta? If he's given immunity, then I think everything goes away except the case down in Florida where he wouldn't have immunity from being, you know, post-president in terms of the mishandling of these classified documents. But there again, he seems to have a sympathetic judge, one that he appointed. Right. No question that this would be a death blow to the prosecutors if, in fact, the court in this case found immunity, because there would be no reason for the court to not find immunity in any other case. So this is for the whole ball of wax. That could affect other cases as well, both in the federal system and even possibly in the state court cases. So what's going on here then? Is this then another example of Trump's delaying tactic? Because the Judge Chutkin D.C. case is supposed to start in March, and this could end up dragging it out. Do you think the next move uh, on Trump's part will be to ask for the D.C. appeals on bank, in other words, all of the uh, judges as opposed to the three-judge panel that heard the arguments today? Unquestionably. The tactic here is go for the whole shot of getting the case thrown out, but at minimum, delay, 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 and that is not hard to do. That came up during the argument, that depending on how the court rules, 
because there was some question of whether they were going to say whether there was not jurisdiction, and then that would go to the whole court and maybe to the Supreme Court. This is a race against the clock. They can get a decision, they being Trump, that they could remand it for further findings, that there was some type of immunity, or even appeal this decision. Trump may be well into the election period before any case could make it to trial. So, Laurie Levinson, are we witnessing the ghost of Roy Cohn here? In other words, he tutored Trump, and Roy Cohn was was masterful at using the law against the law, if you will. Yes, I think that we all know that Trump himself has said Roy Cohn was his mentor. But this is a very dangerous situation of having a mentor, because, in fact, um, you know, Roy Cohn and during the whole, you know, Red Scare in the 50s era um, put our country on its heels. And I think that the court appreciates that this isn't just like any other appeal. This is one that has huge consequences, quote, for our democracy. But what happens when it goes to the Supreme Court? Or do you think it inevitably will go to the Supreme Court? I don't know that it will. It actually depends on how narrowly the court reaches its decision. If the court has a narrow decision, I'm not sure the Supreme Court is eager to take up another Trump case. Don't forget, they have enough decisions that they're coming down their pike as well. But it's a huge case, and the Supreme Court often will take a look at it. And no doubt, Trump is not going to stop. His lawyers are not going to stop. If the next step is the Supreme Court, that's where they'll head. And in fact, the argument was made today that whatever you decide, put your decision on hold so we can get to the next court. And for them, they view the Supreme Court as probably the friendliest court they have. But are you encouraged then by how quickly this case was heard? They seem to... I was very encouraged. Uh Very, Very encouraged by how quickly it was heard. I was also encouraged by the fact that the judges have thought out lines of decision, so they're not going to be starting from scratch after this argument. Um, and they've even been thinking of what is a way to move this down the track and preserve any of the important issues. I think that's why the court was interested in the jurisdiction issue. But um, am I encouraged? It is almost impossible to read tea leaves. For this one, I think these judges would be inclined to side with the government. But Trump and his lawyers obviously won't stop there. So in the in the broader sense, though, the other case that's before the Supreme Court is the Colorado case based on the 14th Amendment to disqualify Trump from the ballot. And most legal analysts think that the Supreme Court is going to rule against that. It raises the broader question of whether or not it's better to beat Trump at the ballot as opposed to in the courthouse. And how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, it's interesting because I do think that the courts are inclined and the argument was being made today that this is what, you know, from the time of Marbury versus Madison, which was courts should not interfere with the political process. So I think the courts would prefer that the electorate vote for the person they want, but they can't avoid altogether this question because we have a system, a federalist system, where states get to make certain decisions. So I think they are likely to overturn the Colorado decision, but in a narrow way. 
that says, let's let the election go through, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Trump is off the hot seat for any criminal prosecution. So all things are happening at once, just that you have the Colorado decision probably not be upheld in the way that it was written, but also allow the criminal justice system to go after Trump because he no longer is the president. And his arguments today were very much as if he were. And in terms of, I mentioned the the Florida case, what's your feelings on that? I mentioned the, the possibility if, if Trump were to prevail in this case that was heard today, it would undercut almost all the cases against him, probably kill them, as you, as you said. But isn't the Florida case a little different in terms of the misuse of classified documents, the poss- and God knows where these documents yeah. ended up? Absolutely. The Florida case is different. And even though Eileen Cannon was an appointee by Trump, I think that she knows the whole world's watching. Uh, On the Florida case, it has always been the strongest case against Trump. Pretty much uh, he's admitted along the way that he mishandled classified documents. This was happening after he was president. Now, he's undoubtedly going to point his finger at other people and he'll raise whatever emotions he can. But if that one can get to trial, I'm a former prosecutor. I would love to be the prosecutor on that case. That is a pretty straightforward case. But at the end of the day, one of the paradoxes of of all of these cases, these four trials that Trump is facing that include 91 counts, the more he is tried and, and accused in the courts, the more his supporters rally around him as though... You know, they really believe uh, that the deep state is out to get him. And so how does the law demolish that canard of the deep state? I mean, let's face it, if there were a deep state, January the 6th wouldn't have happened. Right. That is the big question. But from my own perspective, you don't have a choice. You can't say, gee, there are a lot of people out there who don't want to believe the facts. We're not going to give them the facts. The point of the trial is to put the facts out there. It is too bad that the federal cases won't be televised so people can't see them for themselves. But the next best thing is to put on witnesses, put on evidence. It's a little harder then for people to say it's all made up. There are some that still will. But evidence and facts have traditionally been the way that we get the truth out. But today's hearing before the D.C. Circuit... They did allow audio. Do you think that other cases will allow audio? Well, under Rule 53 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, they do not electronically transmit ordinarily. Um, There was a request in some of the Trump cases to do so in a criminal case. We'll have to wait and see. So we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, It would be an exception to what the general rule is now. So... Just in closing then, Laurie Levinson, your overall impression of today's hearings in terms of this long legal slog ahead in this critical election year? Oh, it had so many aspects of what you've raised. Legally, I think the court is very inclined to go with the government and not give Trump absolute immunity because, frankly, I don't think the law and the history and the Constitution would support that. But nothing is easy, so it'll be a bit complicated how they get to that answer 
and how many opportunities for further argument and appeals it raises for Trump. As you said, right on the mark, there are the legal arguments, which I think very much support the government. But there are the tactics, the strategies, the delay, the public outreach that Trump and his lawyers are focusing on, seeing basically let's take a negative situation and get the best out of it we can. Well, Laurie Levinson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Laurie Levinson, who holds the David W. Bircham Chair in Ethical Advocacy at the Loyola University School of Law. Prior to joining Loyola Law School, she served for eight years as an assistant United States attorney and has written widely on criminal law, focusing both on criminal procedure and on the relationship between the law and the media. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the billionaire Bill Ackman's war against the media, who, after targeting the heads of Penn and Harvard, now finds himself going after MIT and Business Insider for revealing his wife's plagiarism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Cohen, who is a former senior Wall Street investment banker for 17 years at Lazard Frere and Company, Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as a New York Times bestselling author whose books include Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and most recently, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. He's a founding partner at Puck News, where his latest article is Ackman's Revenge. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Cohen. Thank you for having me, and always great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And what do you make of uh, the hedge fund billionaire Ack- uh, Bill Ackman? He started out with a war on Harvard, was a part of the efforts to remove the president of Harvard, and now is going after Business Insider and the media in general. And my understanding has a reputation for being a kind of a, uh, a, you know, like a dog with a bone. He's relentless. He doesn't give up. So how is this battle going? Yeah, I mean, I've known uh, Bill, uh, you know, 11 11 or so years now, uh, had written a profile of him uh, in, in Vanity Fair, uh, 11 years ago, which talked about how uh, he famously uh, went uh, uh, with some of his hedge fund colleagues uh, in the Hamptons on a bike ride out there, you know, in their fancy uh, uh, 10-speed uh, racing bikes. And uh, he decided to make a competition out of it uh, with, with them uh, and, you know, went out really fast and then uh, ended up uh, in what they call bonking, uh, which which means that he basically went into you know lac- lactose uh, lactate uh, deficit, and uh, you know basically his muscles expired on him, and they had to essentially uh, carry him uh, back to to his house. Um, so uh, he uh, you know is uh, a former. Uh, a, a big-time uh, athlete at Harvard on the crew, 
uh, team, uh, is a very good tennis player. You know, so you're right. He is uh, he is relentless. He is known as an activist investor, uh, you know, which means that um, uh, on occasion he gets an idea in his head and uh, will not uh, give up, uh, uh, you know, his uh, bet uh, either for or against whatever uh, the idea is uh, until he's either victorious or, you know, completely decimated on the field of battle. So, for instance, uh, you know, six or seven or eight years ago, he uh, started this campaign against uh, Herbalife, you know, the uh, California-based supplements company. That's a public company. He thought it was a, a fraud and a, a, a multi-level marketing uh, scheme, uh, thought that the FTC should put it out of business. He shorted the stock. Uh, aggressively made a big public campaign against it, um, uh, ended up attracting on the other side of the trade two other hedge fund uh, managers, Carl Icahn and Dan Loeb, uh, who ended up uh, engaging in what's known as a short squeeze against Bill, something he had not anticipated. And long story short, he he, he fought for three or four years and then ended up losing uh, Ian, a billion dollars. Uh, uh, he then followed that up with a uh, investment on the long side in a company called Valiant Pharmaceuticals, which, you know, uh, long story short, uh, he ended up losing four billion dollars uh, on of his and his investors' money. Uh, uh, you know, normally that would have uh, knocked out any hedge fund manager from uh, you know continuing as a hedge fund manager, but not Bill Ackman. He managed to um, make his way through that. He had the support of some investors. He lost a lot of investors, but he managed to muddle his way through that and then came roaring back. You know, I, I wrote about how in uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, he made a $27 million uh, investment in credit default swaps. Uh, which are basically the insurance policies against debt instruments, uh, betting that the bond market would crater uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And he was absolutely right. Those credit those default swaps became very valuable. Uh, he turned that into uh, $2.6 billion and then invested uh, that money into his long portfolio of stocks, betting that the Fed would ride to the rescue uh, after the bond market cratered. And and you know uh, 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 you know bail out all sort you know bail out the bond market bail out the stock market and that happened too and so stocks rose so basically in three weeks time Ian he turned twenty seven million dollar bet into three point six billion dollars I'm pretty sure that's the greatest trade ever on an IRR internal rate of return basis uh, you know last year uh, Bill Ackman uh, uh, had a, a return on his uh, hedge fund of 27%, which, uh, you know, beat pr probably m most other hedge fund managers that you, you may have heard about. So um, Bill is uh, uh, relentless. He, he doesn't give up easily. And basically, this campaign against Harvard and now MIT and against Business Insider and other elements of the media is another, uh, you know, activist campaign uh, for Bill Ackman. Only this time, there's no you know, money on the line. Uh, this time it's personal. It's his 
uh, a second wife's reputation, who he's utterly devoted to. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's not going to give up because he never gives up, uh, whether it's uh, uh, a, a long bet or a short bet or uh, a holding a portfolio of stocks. Uh, you know, he has made his reputation. He's made his bones. He's he is who he is because he is relentless and he won't give up. And, uh, you know, fighting the media is just a sort of a new front and a long war that Bill Ackman has been fighting for a long time. And you mentioned his wife, MIT Professor Neri Oxen, um, who uh, has been Form accused of professor. Pardon? Former, former, sorry. Right. Yeah, let me let me do that again. And you mentioned the former M MIT professor, his wife, Neri Oxman, who is being accused of plagiarism uh, by the Business Insider, and he's going after them. But of course, he uh, was a part of the campaign to uh, unseat the president of Harvard, uh, Claudine Gay. And one of the things that I find extraordinary about that itself uh, is that when Claudine Gay and the other presidents of the prestigious universities were before the questioning from Elise Stefanik of the Congress, she asked them a straw man question. Would you condemn calls for genocide against Jews on campus, yes or no? And none of them pointed out that there weren't any calls on campus uh, for genocide against Jews. You know, this was something that you're making up. So that nobody ever questioned the premise of the, of the question. In fact, instead they floundered. So... You know, and that led to their ouster. Obviously, the issue of plagiarism is essentially a phony one. Uh, so, what kind of honor is there in in getting rid of this woman, uh, this this uh, African American woman? I mean, it's not. You know, obviously Harvard's got a ton of money, and then these other universities, prestigious universities, have a lot of money. But if we start going after presidents of public universities, they don't have the kind of clout to protect their faculty. Aren't we heading in a really dangerous direction? Well, the, the, the denouement of the of, of, of Penn president and the Harvard president uh, as a result essentially of their flubbed testimony uh, in Congress, which was, a, you know, I mean, has anybody w wondered why they even had that hearing in the first place? I mean, it seemed like uh, like the most um, non-crucial uh, topic to have a congressional hearing on. Uh, it was obviously going to be done uh, for political theater, and it proved to be extraordinary political theater, extraordinarily embarrassing for the uh, presidents of those universities who couldn't answer a simple question in a straightforward way, or, or at least question the premise, or at least defend against the premise, uh, and and obviously, you know, say that, you know, calling for, you know, murder of anyone in any form is not really what we're about here. Uh, I mean, I think for that to somehow morph uh, into a pressure from a wealthy alumni to, um, uh, uh, you know, have these people resign is quite extraordinary. Uh, it's so interesting to me also that it some institutions, you know, obviously Sally Kornbluth at MIT has been able to withstand the pressure so far. I mean, notwithstanding Bill Ackman's efforts there, too. Um, you know, why the Penn president and the Harvard president had to go. Obviously, the 
uh, uh, Claudine Gay had to, you know, I probably could have withstood the first round, but it was the second round when she was down relating to the alleged plagiarism um, against her that, she, that, that, that the Harvard Corporation lost confidence in her. It's a very embarrassing situation all around. It's uh, again, we also had a similar situation with the Stanford president and his, uh, you know, problems with his uh, academic uh, studies and research. Um, uh, I find it, you know, uh, somewhat ironic, you know, just like Bill Ackman had a blind spot uh, for potentially being put into a short squeeze when he was shorting uh, the stock of Herbalife, he did not uh, for whatever reason, imagine that Carl Icahn and Dan Loeb would come along to try to engineer a short squeeze, uh, which proved to be very effective. I don't think he, in his wildest dreams, ever thought that his campaign against Claudine Gay, uh, first and foremost, about uh, his view that there was anti-Semitism on the Harvard campus, which morphed into him sort of endorsing her departure because of the calls you know, the evidence against her about plagiarism. I don't think he ever in his wildest dreams thought that that would somehow result in somebody at MIT or elsewhere getting a hold of his wife's uh, uh, PhD thesis and examining that for plagiarism and finding out that there were, I guess, passages in Wikipedia that had been lifted without uh, a proper uh, 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 footnoting and that, you know, she had left uh, uh, quotation marks off of various passages that she, uh, you know, quoted. Uh, you know, it's a 350-page document that she wrote in 2010. I, I'm convinced that Bill never thought uh, that that or even conceived that that would happen. Let alone maybe even somebody looking at his own thesis at Harvard and whether that had any evidence of you know failure to footnote properly, or whatever. I I don't think he saw that coming at all, and so. You know, just like he didn't see the short squeeze coming in Herbalife, or that the fact that Valiant could possibly cost him four billion dollars. Uh, I think he gets um, uh, some, you know, blinders on. He does an incredible amount of research, and he's very thoughtful and careful. But he does occasionally have blind spots, and Herbalife was an example. Valiant was another example, uh, and this clearly is another example. I don't think he ever thought that he would be in the crosshairs and that he would put his wife in the crosshairs. Uh, but, you know, she's a fighter, too. She's uh, Israeli and um, was in the Israeli army, I believe. And so um, I think they are fighters, uh, Ian. And uh, they've got a lot of money, and I don't think he's going to give this fight up easily. But in terms of his views, though, on X, the former platform known as Twitter, He's been arguing, for example, that Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed the protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was a civic-minded patriot. And, of course, now the crypto fraudster Sam Bankman-Fried, who's been convicted, he said that he was telling the truth. So that's pretty contrarian stuff. And he, you know, was endorsing a lot of what uh, Vivek Ramaswamy has been saying, which is controversial. He is also pushing for Jamie Dimon uh, being a candidate uh, for president of the United States, which I think might be an interesting idea, but ha would have no chance of ever happening. Um, Bill is a uh, free thinker, um, clearly. Um, uh, I don't think 
know, he he uh, uh, has people that he, around him who he trusts and he listens to, but I think he um, gets very passionate, uh, Ian, about uh, whatever subjects uh, that he uh, uh, decides to take up. And it, to me, it's this is no different than, uh, you know, uh, one of his activist investment campaigns, which he just rides and rides and rides until he either has a spectacular victory or a spectacular defeat. And, uh, you know, there are some hedge fund managers like, you know, Dan Loeb, who's very tactical, who will come in, uh, make a bet uh, for a short period of time, make his money and then get the heck out. Uh, Bill Ackman is a really long term, he, he, you know, he he models himself. He prides himself. He'd like to think of himself as as the next Warren Buffett. So he's like very much in a buy and hold kind of mode a, a lot of the time, like the current portfolio of seven or eight or nine stocks that he has. You know, the reason he has time, uh, Ian, for these sidebar uh, activist campaigns at Harvard and MIT is because, you know, his portfolio is kind of set. He's sort of sitting there with it and uh, he's not really doing a whole lot uh, to move it around. Mm -hmm. uh, or to or to trade in and out of it, he's just sort of right. happy with what he's got, and he's gonna uh, see you know make his profits based on that. So, just in closing, then, Bill, would we be talking about him, uh, but for the fact that he's a billionaire? He w he wouldn't he wouldn't be doing this, uh, Ian, uh, if he um, a didn't have his own uh, company where he was in control of it. Uh, uh, B had a fortune of four billion dollars and therefore was independently wealthy and could, you know, isn't concerned about quote losing his job or losing his fortune. If he had to work for a living, uh, like most Americans, and had you know a boss uh, who could fire him in an instant, this whole campaign, this whole Twitter X uh, 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 ramblings and diatribes would get 99.9% uh, .9 of other Americans fired in an instant. Uh, the fact that he's uh, part of the billionaire class, uh, you know, like uh, many of his brethren in the billionaire class, including, you know, the former president of the United States, uh, you know, for some reason gives him carte blanche in our society to sort of say and pretty much do whatever he wants without consequences. And and when you have, uh, you know, an, an ability to not have uh, a sense of shame about what you do, uh, uh, you know, like like the former president of the United States, who has no shame whatsoever. Uh, you know, I think Bill also has um, not that much shame about what he's doing. He feels like he's doing the right thing and doesn't have as much self-awareness, perhaps, as other people. Uh, if it weren't for those things, uh, he would never have been doing any of this. Well, William Cohen, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. Well, thank you, Bill. And again, Abby Speaker William Cohen, who's a former senior Wall Street investment banker for 17 years, as Lazard Frere and Company, Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as a New York Times bestselling author whose books include Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street, and most recently, Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. He's a founding partner at Puck News, where his latest article is Ackman's Revenge. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the video Trump is promoting titled God Made Trump, which is inspiring the evangelical community while alarming secular America. Brainwashed by the Nikkei, a brainwashed by Dow Jones.
brainwashed by the footsie, the stack of secure loans. Brainwashed us from Brussels, brainwashing us in Bonn. Brainwashing us in Washington, Westminster in London. God, God, God. You are the wisdom that we seek. God, God, God. The lover that we Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the International Programme at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum on human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she'll be speaking at the Palm Springs International Film Festival tomorrow, Wednesday, about the new feature documentary, Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's War on Democracy, which is based on her book, Shadow Network. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Anne. And we're just uh, learning from a poll from the Des Moines Register that Donald Trump is getting or will get in the, the first primary of 2024, which is next week on the 15th, he's going to be getting over 50% of the evangelical vote. And, of course, he's a shoe-in to win. So that's pretty significant, isn't it? If the evangelicals are the ones that get him the biggest boost over the top to establishing him as the front-runner in the 2024 campaign, again, it's pretty unequivocal evidence of the influence of the Christian right in terms of their... What is it? Adulation of Donald Trump? I don't know how to describe it. How would you describe it? Well, the way I describe it is that there are a lot of, uh, I would say, especially white Protestants, but also African-American and Catholics and others by this, who were deliberately targeted by a political machine going back 40 years. And one of the operations of this machine was Ralph Reed, and he said, there's this block of people who don't vote. They're not very political. They are you know, low-hanging fruit for us. And all we have to do is figure out how to manipulate them and mobilize them. And that's how we can win elections through minority positions, right? So so as, as this film, Bad Faith, demonstrates this was this was a very carefully constructed architecture. And what's so pathetic about it is that the way these voters were mobilized was through a campaign of outright lies. You know, they are being told that Democrats like to execute newborn babies. Right. This is not true. This is this is this is a lie. But if you cut them off from actual information and, and you surround them with these disinformation systems, they believe it and they're told it's a sin to vote for a Democrat. So our entire political system has been uh, perverted by these campaigns. Well, one of the assumptions about 
why Americans don't vote and why they should vote. I mean, at best, in a general election, 60% of the country votes. And the theory has always been, if only you got more people to vote in this country, they'd vote in a progressive way. But what you're telling us is that the opposite happened, that people that didn't normally vote were drawn out from under a rock, and now they're having a powerful effect on our politics. Absolutely. And another architect of this movement, Paul Weyrich, who died a few years ago, uh, gave a very influential speech where he said, we don't want everybody to vote. And in fact, the plan was to suppress democratic votes in uh, low income areas, on big college campuses, etc., through vote suppression measures, which they've been implementing quite effectively, and then driving the evangelical votes with a very keen understanding of the role of swing states, um, which the Democrats haven't always had, right? The Democrats tend to be blindly focused on the aggregate vote, as though the majority of Americans voting for a candidate would mean a victory. That's not how our system works, as we've seen. You can win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College, and it has indeed happened. So they understand that, and they play to the swing states, especially where they have the concentrations of these evangelical voters that they can manipulate. So in this election, and of course we've just entered the the critical election year, there is a video that Donald Trump is promoting on Truth Social called... God made Trump. And it's getting quite a lot of views, uh, and not just by the faithful, but by people (laughs) like me who are just terrified of what the content is, because it's really so clearly Christo-fascist. I don't know any other way to describe it. How would you describe it? Well, it certainly is heretical. I mean, You know, I I suppose most people who went to Sunday school would say, yes, the Lord God made us all. You know, that's how the the song goes. But what they're doing is building on this campaign that has been especially effective among Pentecostal Christians, um, which endows a kind of mystical, almost godlike quality to Trump which you also see in the history of dictatorships, right? That's, that's, that's a common theme where the emperor or the dictator uh, or the dear leader is given godlike qualities and therefore in, in, endowed with authoritarian powers, right? So this has been going on and really in the last round, what they did was tell these evangelical Christians that, well, maybe Trump was a philanderer and committed sexual abuses and committed various financial crimes. So he wasn't exactly uh, one of us, but he was like King Cyrus in the Bible. He was uh, uh, an instrument of God. Now they're pushing that farther and using the way that he shamelessly uh, deployed photo ops with various evangelical leaders through his presidency to to show him as somebody who is literally anointed, right? And this this language has 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 a very powerful effect 
on these religious communities. But I'd like to remind everybody that this is a relatively new phenomenon. If you go back 40 or 50 years, you could not look at most of our religious denominations and use that as a predictor of how they were going to vote, right? We had a lot more purple states and a lot more, uh, a bigger role of the actual political campaign and issues in elections rather than this incredible antagonism that they have created in our political system, where not only is the other party your adversary, they're also called demons. And this is incredibly dangerous for our democracy, and it is breeding violence. So let's play a clip of uh, this video called God Made Trump, which is getting the rounds, and which, of course, Donald Trump himself is promoting uh, on Truth Social. And on June 14th, 1946, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God gave us Trump. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, fix this country, work all day, fight the Marxists, eat supper, then go to the Oval Office and stay past midnight at a meeting of the heads of state, so God made Trump. I need somebody with arms, strong enough to rustle the deep state, and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to ruffle the feathers, tame cantankerous World Economic Forum, come home hungry, have to wait until the first lady is done with lunch with friends, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon, and mean it. So God gave us Trump. I need somebody who can shape an axe, but wield a sword. And we just played a little excerpt from this video, God Made Trump, which is created by the Dilly Meme team who work in close contact with the Trump campaign. They call themselves Trump's online war machine. And we can expect more of this, surely, can we not? And that's why I think your documentary, or the documentary based on your book, Shadow Network, Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism, War on Democracy, is so important. I mean, a war on democracy is underway. And how much do you think that Christian nationalism is a component in this war on democracy, which now President Biden is now emphasizing, if not making it a central theme of his campaign? Oh, I think it's a major instrument of their strategy. And again, remember that if you go back even 30 years, Trump had nothing to do with these people, right? He had no... Uh, connection to their religious beliefs or practices or institutions. This is a marriage of convenience. Uh, or you could call it a devil's bargain if you prefer. But again, I have to you know, emphasize who these voters are. Um, these evangelicals represent only you know, less than 15% of the population. But they have been organized to have a near total turnout. So they have almost 30% of the electorate in 2020, right? So they're voting to double their, their weight, right? And that's nationally. What's really important is that white evangelicals are disproportionately concentrated in swing states, including Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and North Carolina. And those were the states where just razor thin margins made the difference in 2020. We're talking about you know, in, in some cases, only a couple of thousand votes 
So if they have that double the weight of their turnout in t- and they feel antagonized by the political system overall and the Democrats and they're influenced by this disinformation system and then they get this uh, wave of Trump the anointed one propaganda, that creates a real disadvantage to the rest of us. So in this new feature documentary, Bad Faith, based on your book, Ann Nelson, The Shadow Network, you're featured in the documentary, and there's just a couple of points that I wanted to focus on. You are interviewed in the film about the, the money behind the movement and the development of the prosperity gospel, which is rooted in Calvinism. You're also interviewed about the connections between Texas oil and Christian fundamentalist organizations. So one at a time, could you address that? Sure. Uh, My book departs from the role of the Council for National Policy. And when I started writing it like, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, nobody that I knew had heard of it. And they're like, why are you writing a book about this? Um, Now, just last month, I published a piece in the Washington Spectator pointing out that Michael Johnson, our new Speaker of the House, gave a speech at the Council for National Policy crediting their leadership for creating his political career and putting him in office. And so this young Louisianan, whom people had not particularly focused on before, becomes, uh, you know, second in line to the presidency. So this group has powerful influence, and the influence is that they bring big donors, major donors, and they connect them to strategists, and they have their own media system. They have their own radio shows, their own television cable operations, their own digital platforms. And what we have seen, and my colleague Heidi Kuda, who works here in Los Angeles, uh, has documented how many of these operations intersect with Russian operations. And we're all collectively still documenting how that works. But, you know, the bottom line is that the United States electorate is being played uh, it's, and oil interests are involved. There's a lot of Coke money from the Coke brothers operations involved. Um, there's also money from what they call the freshwater donors who are major operations like the Bradley Foundation and the DeVos family in Michigan and Wisconsin. Now, those two states used to be union states, they used to go Democrat, and in both states, they have crushed the unions and uh, really crippled a lot of the Democrats' operations in the past. So again, it's highly orchestrated, it is very intelligently planned, and it's inherently anti-democratic. So given that Mike Johnson is obsessed with homosexuality, and so is Vladimir Putin, even though there's a considerable gay network inside the Kremlin itself. What do you think is going on here? Is Why do these right-wing evangelicals, these American Christo-fascists, love Putin? Because he's beating up on gays and equating homosexuals with terrorists, passing really draconian laws. Is that in any way a subtext for why Mike Johnson is cutting off funds for Ukraine, which, of course, will help Putin immensely. And we know that Putin's really heavily invested in Donald Trump returning to the White House. 
Well, as I pointed out in The Washington Spectator, uh, Mike Johnson comes out of Louisiana and Louisiana, along with Texas and Oklahoma, are American petrostates. And the U.S. oil industry magnates have been working closely with the Russian oil industry uh, going way back. I mean, Charles Koch's father built oil refineries for Stalin back in the day, as well as Hitler. So uh, I think that there are these economic relationships that transcend politics. And in terms of the brutal criminal policies that are being uh, implemented against LGBTQ people and women's health issues. I mean, we're seeing the clock roll back to a medieval age. And I believe that through their groups like the Leadership Institute, which is the parent organization of Moms for Liberty, um, which has disrupted school boards across California and across the nation, right? They work very hard in their focus groups and branding exercises. So right now, what they've found is that a lot of Americans are uncomfortable with the issue of sexual transitioning. Now, this is understandable. It's new. It's unproven. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. There's a lot of discussions that need to be had about the medical process and the psychological impact, fine. But what they're doing is, again, demonizing trans people. They're lying about them. They're uh, attacking them, sometimes physically, in ways that are really profoundly illegal and un-American. But they're doing it because they can touch that raw nerve and mobilize voters through fear and hatred. So this docu- this video that I mentioned, God Made Trump, that's getting the rounds and Trump is promoting on Truth Social, part of it, this weird Christo-fascist screed in support of Trump, this godlike figure that they see uh, rescuing America from the devils uh, like you and me, uh, and they... <laughs> they Speak for yourself, Ian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but what seems incongruous in this video is that they keep sort of saying, drill, baby, drill. They cut to scenes of, you know, of oil rigs and stuff. So there seems to be the connection that you're bringing up between Texas oil money and these evangelicals. Absolutely. Uh, and and it's, it's, you know, really a hand-in-glove operation. They have been absolutely savage in attacking the Environmental Protection Agency. They want it gone. They want our population to live without any environmental protections, without any climate policy, so that the oil industry, the fossil fuels industry in general, can eke out their last, you know, squeeze out their last pennies of profit, uh, regardless of the environmental impact. Uh, And that's one reason that they're so uh, grounded in these American petrostates like Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma, because People in California have experienced the fires. People on the East Coast are experiencing the floods. We're living with the climate crisis. Um, but they're working with populations who can be in denial about it and also who don't inform themselves. They aren't informed about the consequences of these policies. So, uh, you know, this November 2024 election is a 
earth-shaking importance. And it would be a tragedy if people were voting, some of them under false pretenses, and other people not voting because they don't understand the consequences. I mean, in terms of this film, what we really hope is that it will be picked up by distributors and picked up by individuals and groups who will get it to the people on the level of the community who can use it to understand what's going on around them. These school board disruptions, they're not random. They're centrally planned, they're heavily funded. They're coordinated on a national basis. And yet local parents who go to the school board don't know what hit them, right? It's like all of a sudden, after all of these years, their school boards are, are a viper's pit. How did that happen, right? And it's not because of a single book in the library. And, you know, the other thing that, that really burns me is that good people are getting hurt. The school teachers who've been you know, serving their students all of these years, the school librarians, the election workers, these people who have served the public are being viciously attacked by this machine. So they are, you know, part of the foundations of democracy, public schools, public libraries, public health, right? That's what they're trying to destroy. Well, Anne, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And I appreciate your ongoing coverage of these incredibly important issues. Well, thank you, Anne. And again, I've been speaking with Anne Nelson, who's an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris and her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right now out in an updated paperback version and she will be speaking at the Palm Springs International Film Festival tomorrow Wednesday about the new film Bad Faith, Christian Nationalism's War on Democracy which is based on her book Shadow Network. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.